Well, good morning. Um, just one quick announcement I want to draw your attention to. Um, I saw Katie Fagan walked in here. Katie, where are you? Right here. Can you stand up a second? Just quickly. Say hi to everybody. This is Katie, if you don't know Katie. Katie is organizing an event um, this Friday night to help raise um, funds and awareness um, for homelessness. We were once told the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, and there are too many people today who also do not have a home. Um, and so to raise awareness for homeless, there's an event called Sioux Center Sleepout happening this Friday night out in the green space at New Life Church. Katie is organizing uh, there's a couple speakers and some worship. And if you would like to learn more um, about what it's like to um, just sort of experience that for one night in solidarity with those who don't come and see Katie after chapel, will you be here for a couple minutes afterward? Thank you very much. And um, lastly, right before I pray too, um, it's Sam Ashmore's 27th birthday today. Happy birthday, Sam Ashmore. If you see him, if you see him around on campus today, go give him a big hug. Um, he's a hugger, not a handshaker, so you'll have to hug him. But Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the invitation as we sing our way into your presence. An awareness a deeper awareness of your work in us, among us, and in some miraculous ways through us. God, we thank you for it. As we turn our attention now again to the Gospel of John and the things that your son had to say in his farewell speech, we ask that they'd find um, a home today, even in these familiar words, find a home in a new way with us. In his name we pray. Amen. So if you've got a crowd of people inside a giant crowd of people and you want to get their attention, there's a number of ways, of course, that you can do this. Some people would become much more flamboyant and they would become larger than life in their personality. Or if you wanted to win the attention of somebody in the middle of a conversation when there are lots of other voices around, one way to do it is to simply raise your voice and become louder than everybody else in the room, or you could simply just sort of pull everybody closer, and Jesus' strategy as Jerusalem is swelling with people, and as electric energy is filling this place, his strategy is he takes the disciples into the upper room, and he grabs their attention by washing their feet, by feeding them bread and wine, and then by pulling them in really close, to speak to, them, speak to them the last words that they needed to hear. It becomes known as the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. And as I read this passage to you this morning, I want you to imagine being one of Jesus' followers. You see what I did there? You just imagine this? You are Jesus, one of Jesus' followers. So you're going to imagine that you're in this space and Jesus is, is you're, you're, you're in the huddle and um, he's trying to share some of the most important things you're going to need to know in this life. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that bears fruit he prunes, so that it'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from the Father, I have made known to you. And you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This passage starts off, one of the questions every reader has to ask themselves is, why the adjective? I am the true vine. You see, this is a huge departure from everything that had taken place in the rest of biblical literature up until this point. Every Old Testament text in which Israel is mentioned as the vine, it is always in the context of judgment and unfaithfulness. Ben Witherington, in his commentary on this passage, says that the understanding of the full significance of this passage hinges on understanding the background and the way the function and reference of metaphor are altered from the traditional usage. So, so often you'll see Jesus do this in his teaching. He takes something that everybody would have known, and the lesson comes in how he changes it. Now, you have to understand, these are the list of passages that everybody around him would have known that all reference Israel as the vine in the Old Testament. And every single one of them is a negative reference. Every single one of them is the context of failure and judgment. I'll give you an example. From Jeremiah, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? From Isaiah 5, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. 
I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So you can see in every one of these references, there's this scathing critique of Israel every time it's mentioned as the vine. And so Jesus starts off his teaching here saying, I am the true vine, and you cannot miss the adjective. Jesus is saying in this moment, I am true Israel. I am your identity. I am the locus of all that you are. And I am your every hope. I am what God was looking for all along. And everything that you could not provide and answer for in it, in your nationalism, I will become. Your nationalism and in its identity is of no hope to you. Your only identity will be found in me. I am not the vine, or I'm not the vine that you once knew. I am the true vine. I am not the vine of Israel. I am the true and the only vine. So a little more on vines. If a vine is left unattended, it looks like this. And so the passage goes on to talk about the pruning that God has to do in it. N.T. Wright describes the process like this. A vine left to itself will get straggly and tangled. And in fact, it will grow in on itself. It will quite literally get in its own light. It needs help to grow in the right direction and to the right ends. So you prune it to stop it wasting its energy and being unproductive. You cut out particularly the parts of the plant that are growing inwards and getting tangled up. You encourage the shoots that are growing outward towards the light. You prune, in other words, to help it be its true self. Now, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. You are an extension of this. So I want to read this now one more time again, inserting you. And I want you to hear this uh, as it's being spoken over you. You left to yourself will get straggly and tangled. Left to yourself, you will grow in on yourself. You will quite literally get in your own light. You need help if you want to grow in the right direction and to the right end. And so Jesus wants to prune you so you will stop wasting your energy and being unproductive. And he'll cut out the parts in you that are growing inward and getting tangled up. He will encourage the shoots that are growing outward, the ones that are moving toward the light. He prunes you, in other words, to help you become your true self. Everything that Jesus has ever sought to do for us is to take us into a place of abundance. Everything that Jesus has ever allowed come into our life in hardship in his hands has the potential to be redeemed and to become something that glorifies him and makes it beautiful. And if it doesn't happen that way, we end up growing in 
on ourselves. Jesus saves us from ourselves. Every single one of us, if we don't have an awareness that Jesus is the one who is guiding us into tomorrow, that Jesus is the one who is giving us breath, that Jesus is the one who is going before, that Jesus is the one who has already completed the story, if we're not living every day like that, then we take over that role for ourselves. And what it's set, Jesus says is that we will grow in on ourselves. In other words, we become our own worst enemy. And every one of us in this world who feels like we have to fight for ourselves is actually destroying ourselves. That's the essence and the heart and the soul of this text. That you and I are invited to be someone who opens our lives up and we don't have to self-protect because there is one who even in the pain and the hardship has good and beautiful things planned for us. So he prunes. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Jesus is the most perfectly efficient recycler. He will take every hurt and every pain, and if we allow him to have his way, take even those and make them more beautiful. This season of Lent is all about the reminder of that, and we're trying to work it deeper inside of our soul and into our choices and every, into every self-protecting mechanism that we build into our lives to know that we've opened ourselves up and we allow his pruning to have its way. He will make you more fruitful than you can ever make yourself. And I know that we have great ambitions for our own lives. Every one of us do. And I want you to know that Jesus' ambitions and goals for your life are greater than yours. You left to your own devices will grow in on yourself. You left to Jesus' devices can become everything that you were intended to be. And I know that this is a hard process. It is an up-close and personal, difficult process. And I don't have to tell you that because any one of you in this room who have ever suffered, ever, ever struggled, ever had some place in your mind where you go and you live sometimes and nobody else knows about, all the places where you doubt when you wake up in the morning, all the places where you feel like you have failed others and yourself and God, you know this all too well. But that's the place where he comes in intimacy, where he comes close to us and he prunes us with nail-scarred hands that have known suffering He stands with you in that moment, and you don't got to get yourself cleaned up to come back. He's the one in that moment. He is there working in you, changing you, redefining you. He comes all up in the space, and this is the moment of deep intimacy when we allow Jesus to prune in our lives. How much of our prayer life isn't coming before God and dictating to him all the things that we want to see him accomplish? And then we tell him it's all in Jesus' name, but is it? If our will has been bent entirely and completely to his, then it becomes bent to his will. N.T. Wright later on in the commentary from I was reading what says this about pruning. He says, the vine dresser is never closer to the vine, taking more thought over its long-term health and productivity than when he has a knife in his hand. When he's up close and personal. And don't let the so that get lost on you in this text. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So every one of you, every one of you who's here, every one of you who wants to lay your life before Jesus and say, use me in some capacity, everybody who has ever prayed that prayer, he prunes so that you will be even more fruitful. He is not done with you yet. His promise is that he will never be done. He calls the huddle close. He says, come and listen to my words. This is the most important stuff I'm going to tell you. Listen closely, I have plans and I have visions for you. 
But when you walk out of here, it's not going to look like victory yet. The disciples needed to hear that as Peter's about to go into the garden and pull out his sword and try lopping off somebody's ear to bring in the kingdom on his terms. And not in submission to Jesus. And the question we have to ask ourselves in these seasons is, do we believe that God's desire is to bring about a greater abundance in our life than we can create for ourselves? And this is the path of faith, my friends. So what's the takeaway? What do I want you to walk away from this with the action item? What did Jesus have in mind when he pulled the disciples together? Like, there's certain things that, right, when, when all the other words fall away, you got to take a little something with you. If you were to take this text, I just want to do a little mental exercise with you and just see if you can find a theme inside of this of what Jesus wants from you in this moment. Just, just want to see if you can see it for a minute. It's really hidden in the text. I don't think Jesus ever had a stuttering problem, but it sure sounds like it in this text, doesn't it? Eleven times in seven verses. In the imperative, in the command form, this is what I want you to do. You've got to remain. You've got to remain. Jesus doesn't say we're going to sit in here in a huddle like a pep talk and like a quarterback who says, okay, break. You all go out, and then you go do your thing, and when you get beaten up, you come all back. Jesus says, stay here. The world's going to get transformed when you stay with me. I'm not going to send you out alone. Your transformation of yourself and of the world will happen when you just stay. Just stay the course. The world's going to swirl around you. Cling to the cross. The winds are going to blow and it's going to be hard. Just stay. Jesus doesn't tell them to leave the huddle and go out on their own. He tells them that remaining does not equal stagnancy. Remaining equals abundance. Remaining equals the evidence and the proof within our lives that you won't have to create it, but that he will create it for you. And if this wasn't clear enough for us, he spells it out. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. I don't know what the next choice is that you're going to have to make when you walk out of this room. I don't know what the next hard thing is that Jesus is going to ask you to walk through. I don't know if you're conscious of the fact that you need Jesus more than the next breath you're about to take. The next meal you're going to eat. The next self-protecting thing that you're going to want to enact in your life. But here's the thing about faith, friends. Is his strength is not dependent upon your ability to see it. And his presence is not dependent on your ability to feel it. And his power is not dependent upon your ability to believe it. His love is not dependent on your ability to comprehend it. And his faithfulness is not dependent upon your faithfulness back to him. Peter's about to prove that, isn't he? And you and I do every day. As we break huddle and we break rank, and we stumble and fall and we prove the strength of his faithfulness through our own brokenness. But again, Jesus has purpose in mind because Jesus isn't aiming aimlessly in life. I have told you all this, he said. And here's a second so that of the text. So that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be complete. 
Jesus is saying in the midst of all of this swirling around, in the midst of the rejection you're about to experience, in the midst of the hardship, even the persecution and the resistance that you're about to experience, in the midst of all of that, you need to know that I'm going to take the joy that the Father has put in me, I'm going to put it in you, so when all the winds storm around you, they will not be able to take that from you. And as a result, you will look different in the world. So I need you to do it the same way I did it. And in this text, we encounter the most powerful as's in Scripture. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I did it just like him. So now stay here. And my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I got it from the Father. I got my plan. I got my pattern from him. And then he said it when he washed the disciples' feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And here's the great as. you got to do it like Jesus. And this is terrifying for us. Because this is where we want to resort back to in this strategy making of how we're going to engage all of our relationships in the rest of the world. We want to engage in self-protection. I'm in the middle of reading Andy Stanley's book right now, Irresistible. And for hundreds of pages, basically, he's telling me the same thing, but it's taking that long to sink in. That if we haven't made the love of Christ look irresistible, then we're simply doing it wrong. And that every great movement of church, in, every great movement of the church in history was when it was self-denying. When it laid aside its own agenda, when it stopped trying to do it for Jesus and let Jesus do it through them. And when we did it like this, in self-sacrificing love. See, the world knows how to return a punch for a punch. What it doesn't know is how to lay down its own life in response to it or how to turn the other cheek. This is why Jesus' words are so revolutionary, but you either have to believe that he knows how to change the world or he doesn't. And this is where his salvific work becomes his lordship work in our lives. Jesus showed us in the example that nobody ever got saved without somebody else getting uncomfortable. And the question that the American church has to ask itself in this cultural moment is, am I more interested in being wronged in order for someone else to be made right with God? Or am I just interested in winning? Am I interested in winning in my words or in my life? Am I more interested in security? Or am I more more interested in introducing someone to the Savior? Am I more interested in putting up the walls and the weapons of my life to return fire whenever somebody is attacking me? Or am I more interested in allowing them to see something that the world has never seen? A love that denies itself and lays itself down. So I want to ask you, would you be willing to be the doormat? Just be wronged. Just be walked over. If it meant someone else was going to walk over the threshold of faith, if that was the price that Jesus was asking you to pay, would you pay it? We keep thinking that people can get screamed into the kingdom of God. That is not the pattern of the example that Jesus set for us. A self-effacing, self-sacrificing love, Jesus said and showed us, is what opens the doorway for other people to experience the love of his Father. Would you be willing to be the doormat? If it meant somebody else got to walk over the threshold of faith. And so in the very next line, in verse 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this that they lay down their life for their friends. Except I've seen Christians take this line and and we actually do the exact thing that the Israelites wanted to do. We want to turn it into some sort of like nationalistic thing or just about our people. I saw this before in a Christian store. With... John 15, verse 13, printed underneath. Greater love has no man than this than he laid on his life for his friends. 
which is the complete opposite of everything that's supposed to be being communicated in this passage. What a sad irony that we're still trying to do the same thing the original hearers of this text wanted to do. We wanted to find friends and neighbor on our own terms and not on Jesus. So he closes with this. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. This is my command, love each other. I've heard John say this so many different times. Following Jesus isn't complicated, it's just hard. Isn't that the truth? But there are more specific questions that you and I are invited to ask each other in, in this. Is, am I interested in security? Or am I interested in the Savior? Am I interested in being right? Or am I more interested in being wrong and so that somebody else can be made right? And I'm not going to pretend for a minute that this cost that we are asked in this isn't huge. But Jesus also reminds us that this is his joy. When you have forsaken something else in this world, put yourself in an uncomfortable place and watch someone come to a saving faith with Jesus Christ. There is a joy in that that no self-protection in the world can ever, ever match. Why not be wronged? Why not be the doormat? Why not look like a Jesus who sacrifices himself to open the doorway for others? And yet I hear Christians who keep talking about grace pitted against truth as if Jesus had some sort of multiple personality disorder. That there were these pieces of him fighting against themselves. They belong together. They have to be held together. You will be asked to be full of grace and full of truth like the one who has set the pattern for you. And I know that that's hard, but we're going to stand on the edge in the middle of our culture. We're going to live on that knife's edge of being in the world and not of it. And we're going to have to speak truth with winsome, beautiful, grace-filled language that makes Jesus irresistible again. And nothing will tell that message louder than you denying something in yourself, modeling that for the rest of the world, and even willing to be wronged. If it means somebody else gets made right. Because the pattern and the example of Jesus has already showed us that nobody gets saved unless somebody else gets uncomfortable or even hurt. So will you pay that price? It's one of the Lenten questions. Not can you celebrate the resurrection, but can you understand that the cross comes first in our own lives, before the world, and as part of our witness? I'll ask the band to come up and lead us in one closing song as you pray with me. God, our Christianese sounds so neat and tidy sometimes. We want to acknowledge and admit that it's hard to follow you. Just as all the disciples within the next 24 hours of this speech were about to bail on you. We confess that in our moments of hardship, we do it too. And so we ask for your strength. And we ask that any place in our life right now, God, we open ourselves up and we say, have your way. You are the gardener. And we invite you to prune in our lives anything that is not bearing fruit. Father, in a great act of faith and with great daring, we pray this prayer. Asking you to have your way. Because we want your joy. 
And we want it to be complete in us. Just like you promised. We ask that you teach us to trust in that. With every breath. With every choice. With all that we are. In Jesus' name. Amen.